The Gospel according to Luke, the sixth chapter, beginning to read at the thirty-ninth verse. Jesus also told them a parable. Quote, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully taught, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite? First. Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil man out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation upon rock, and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But he who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation against which the stream broke, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Amen. And amen. Two weeks ago tonight, television history was made. Yes, it was on that cold Sunday night when more people watched one television program more than any ever before in the history of that great industry. According to the best estimates, 71% of the viewing audience that night was watching the same program. Nearly three out of every four homes were tuned to the same network. And as estimated in that eight-day period, 130 million Americans saw the adaptation of Haley's book, Roots. I know probably most of you saw part, if not all, of the 12 hours condensed into, what was it, eight episodes. Very, very interesting, and I've been keeping a log of stories that have developed since two weeks ago tonight. You've read them, heard them, 
It's been very interesting to see the fallout that has come as a result of that one thing happening in our American society. Some sociologists and psychologists claim that we have yet to see the effect and the reaction upon the American public made by, by that one particular television serial. It's been interesting to see that discussions have erupted in homes and churches. Families would stay home together to watch what was almost a nightly ritual. Supposedly some fights broke out, even in Harrisburg, close to home, which they say were claimed by a cause of that particular reaction. I read Friday in Win Fanning's column that the man who was responsible for the makeup is suing the producers for three million dollars because he felt his name was not in large enough print or at least was not equal to that of the costume designer and he feels three million dollars will make that correction feel more comfortable very interesting to see all of these things that have happened and one of the things that I hear from you people is that you have begun once again to re-examine some of your roots. Not only your family roots, but your religious roots. I'm hoping that this will help us to today look upon some of the roots of what we talk about conceptually here week after week. I'm hoping that this will help us to examine briefly and hope that it will excite you enough to think about more this week that concept that we just sang about so triumphantly, O oh Lord, give us peace in our time. I want us to look today at the roots of peace. Peace, something that every American wants something that we're having a hard time finding, something that should be a number one priority on all of our prayer lists. Peace in our time, O Lord. Now, the Bible talks a lot about peace, and nowhere does it give to us the idea that peace is a root. It's not. Paul says it, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. You see, peace does not belong under the ground, but out on the far end of the branch. Peace is a fruit of something far deeper. Wallace Hamilton in his book calls it a serendipity. That is, you find peace not when you're looking for it, but it comes as a surprise when you're looking for something else. Peace is a byproduct. Go out and make up your mind you're going to find peace and you'll never find it. Go out and try to purchase it and you can't buy it. Peace is something that comes only as a result of something else. It's a fruit. And if you're ever going to have peace in our time, O oh Lord, we have to trace the fruit of peace to its root. For some time, I've been holding back a piece of literature, poem, call it what you want, prose, verse, 
that I read last November in a newsletter that comes out from the Adult Education, Christian Education Foundation in Madison, Wisconsin. That's Harley Swiggum's group, the author and creator of Bethel. He sends out a newsletter and included this in November, and I'm taking the license and liberty to reverse it, hoping that that will have some impact upon you. But the idea of this verse, which I want you to remember, write it down if you want, is that there will never be peace in the world unless there is order in the nation. There will not be peace in the world, that fruit, until there is order in the nation. And I stand before you today as a pastor who is going through many experiences. I think maybe some of you have caught them in the last several weeks. The Lord is speaking to me in a way in which he never has in my 19 and a half years of ministry. Not quite sure what is happening. It's a little spooky, a little frightening, terribly exciting. Even keeps me up some nights. But one of the things that I want to say to you is that I feel greatly relieved in one sense because I think I see on the horizon a new sense of order coming to the United States of America. And part of that vision has been given to me by some columnists, editorialists, people who sometimes make fun of what we do here on Sunday mornings and try to be during the week, people who think of the church as being too little and too late, people who, who kind of make fun of what we stand for. Some of those hardened writers are beginning to say that they are seeing the seed the seeds of a new spirit, a new revival going on in America. I'm so excited that I'm spending some of my study time reviewing historically what happened in America back in the Second Awakening in 1858 and some of those other things which happened in other lands when God seemed to be speaking to a group of people. I think he's speaking today, and I'm glad to see that from another port other than the pulpit, comes a vision that something is happening. And those people, not myself, but those people are basing their decisions upon things like the fact that Vietnam is behind us, that Watergate is gone, that our college campuses are not quite as noisy as they were in the 60s and the early 70s that church membership and attendance, when we've been talking about the increase of the decrease that that particular level seems to have reached its bottom peak. We are beginning to hear once again from those group of people that have been labeled as the silent majority. Some of them are getting a little fed up and beginning to speak out. These are all signs all signs that maybe a new order is coming back to this nation that we love. Very interested to note that Newsweek magazine in talking about the inauguration, and remember they had on their lead cover that title, A New Spirit. Sounds like church. And they said that our new president's 
inauguration speech sounded more like a sermon than it did an agenda for the nation. That excites me when a man whom we vote into office can start and have the courage to start a major address by quoting from Micah. What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, love mercy, to walk humbly with God? That is a sermon. And it stands to reason. We have a man in the White House now, though what you think of him one way or another, at least he goes to church and he goes to Sunday school. It's been a long time since I've seen a man in that house who goes to Sunday school and carries a Bible when he goes. There'll be no peace in the world until there's order in the nation. And I cannot help but feel and be totally impressed with the feeling that a new order is emerging and that some of us right here in this place today are going to have much to say and do with that new order. That's frightening. But that is the impression which has been placed upon me. It's an awful thing to be in the hands of the living Lord. But folks, that's where we are. That's where we are. There'll be no peace in the world unless there is order in the nation. And there's order in the nation only when there is harmony in the home. That's the third point, those of you who are writing them down. Peace in the world based upon order in the nation, which is based upon harmony in the home. I was both elated and discouraged this past week. Thursday night, after coming home from a very long presbytery meeting and trying to read the paper with one eye and watch television, and Bill Burns and Ray Tannehill with the other eye, I didn't catch the full story, but I saw our president, and I think he got it maybe from that book that he carries, addressing a group of people where he said something which I liked, where he told the people, and many of them laughed, that he thought it was time they get their own houses in order because he didn't think that any leaders of this nation could lead the nation if they couldn't lead their own homes. There was a lot of humor connected with it, and they laughed, but I was thrilled because that's almost what is said in the third chapter of the first book of Timothy. You've got to get your own house in order if you ever expect to lead somebody else's house, be it a home or a nation. I was thrilled at this, but because I didn't catch it all, I ran to the newspaper on Friday hoping to catch the context, the complete wording. And you know, in the printed page, there wasn't one word about that comment. Many other things that he had said, but for some reason or other, our writers of newspaper didn't think that was important enough to hear, and that discourages me. Because public leaders can't do much unless their private lives correspond with what they say. There needs to be harmony in the homes. 
And I don't mean to oversimplify, we preachers do that from time to time, you know, but I still think that much of the unrest that we've had in America can be directly turned back to disharmony in the home. Yeah. If you can't find harmony in the home, you're not going to find it in the college classroom or in the places of business. Simple principle of life. How does Jesus put it? A house that is divided cannot stand. Harmony, you see, and to have harmony you have to have more than one person. It means two or more people working together to bring forth beautiful, harmonious sounds. We are made, you see, not to be people who are always arguing in our homes, but people who are to be in agreement. We're not to be in competition with our children or with our parents or with our mates. We're there to complement one another. We are not there to promote ugliness, but unity. And this idea that it's healthy in a home to have everybody disagreeing, I don't know where we get that, but we don't get it from the Bible. Harmony in the home. Harmony in the home. There'll be no peace in the world until there's order in the nation, and there'll be no order in the nation until there's harmony in the home, and there'll be no harmony in the home until there is beauty in character. Beauty in character. Notice how our English language, the words, especially the adjectives, are changing. When we wanted to show somebody as being exemplary in our idea, what we do, we said he was a square shooter. Square lost its connotation, and today you don't use that unless you want to point up somebody's inferiority or weakness. We used to say something was lovely. Don't do that anymore. Today, the thing that I notice we say most when we want to show our Belief in someone's goodness is we call him or her a beautiful person. And we do that with the idea that that is a word which is to be exceptionally used. And the Bible says we're all beautiful people. That's not to be the exception, that's to be the rule. And you don't have harmony in the home unless you have beautiful people people who are beautiful in character. And I don't know what that means to you exactly, and I've worked hard on this section of the sermon, but it means something like this to me. It means somebody who, when they speak, speak with wisdom. Their knowledge may not be the greatest, the IQ the highest, but they have wisdom. And some of the wisest people I know are those who have had the least formal education. And when they speak those words of wisdom, they speak them in tones of kindness. A beautiful person to me is one who has a twinkle in the eye and a little bit of a skip in the step. An individual who smiles quietly does not laugh too loudly and weeps openly. A beautiful person is one who knows how to win and isn't afraid to lose.
A beautiful person is one who, when he knows he is wrong, he apologizes, but when he is right, he never apologizes. Somebody who, with his money, his time, and his family, he knows when to hang on and when to let go. A beautiful person is one who knows when to speak and when to remain still, when to push, and when to pull, and when to stand still and wait. A beautiful person is one who knows who he or she is and is never afraid to be he or she. A beautiful person that's what it takes. And if there are no beautiful characters, there will be no harmony in the home. And without harmony in the home, there will be no order in the nation. And no order in the nation, there will be no peace in the world. But, and here comes the crux and the basic root, there can be no beauty of character unless there is righteousness in the heart. You see, peace way out there begins with what's going on right in here. The root of peace in the world begins with the righteousness in your heart and in mine. Righteousness. That's a big word which means right. We're right in character, you see, when we believe in the right no matter how many times the black hats and wrong people seem to win. We're right in our hearts when we know what is right and here is the word that is given to us for rightness. But as we read in today's scripture, it's not just knowing what is right, but doing what is right that is the basic root to peace in the world. It means that when you and I are faced with decisions, we don't first ask the question, how much is it going to cost? How many friends am I going to lose? But we ask, is it right? It means that we do in private what we know is right to do in public. It means that we're not afraid to be called a person who has his head screwed on right. And it means that we know our God and have confronted him through Jesus Christ, who tells us that if we believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ being the Son of God and the Savior of sin, we're all right with God. It means that because we're a little old-fashioned, we don't have to apologize for being right. How can such a great big thing out there that is worldwide begin 
with a little attitude that beats within my breast. It's hard to explain, but that's the way it goes. And I hope you'll think about that. I hope you'll think about peace in the world. There'll be none until first there is order in the nation, and order in the nation will come about only when there's harmony in the home, and harmony in the home will come only with the beauty of character, and beauty of character comes only with righteousness in your heart and mine. Yesterday we celebrated the birthday of a great American, a man who never formally belonged to the church, but who I'm sure numbered with the people of God. A man who stood in front of this nation in a time when maybe things were not so dissimilar. A man whom I'm sure many of you have forgotten about until I mention him today. He said some of these same things that I'm trying to say today. Why not? We both got them from the same source, the Word of God. And Abraham Lincoln, on March 4th, 1865, as a part of his second inaugural address, said, With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up that nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Amen. Father, thank you for history. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for making us right through Jesus Christ. And thank you, Father, for not wasting your time in making us right. Father, give us the ability to be right as we see the right from you. And now, may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you henceforth and evermore.